Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for our super producer, Max the Great North Williams. What do you, you think that one works? It works. Yeah, yeah it all works. I, I am from the most northern state out of the three of us, I That's believe. what I was You're thinking. a Michigander. Right? I am a Michigander mm-hmm. by that, birth. That's yeah. the correct term, isn't it? It is, yeah. 100% correct Michigander, term. that's hilarious. So it was good for the Michigoose. Is good for the Michigander. You're no Brown. That's me. I'm Ben Bolin. Uh, Today we are we're doing it with the help of a research associate, uh, Max Williams, the Michigander, the Michigander, Max the Michigander Williams, doing some uh, doing some double duty here. We are continuing our weird mission, our Don Quixote esque quixotic mission to do an episode about every single state in these United States. Where we punching windmills whenever we get the chance. Sure. Well, they, it, that's on them for punching like giants. Anyway, yeah. Jousting them. Yeah. We're all completely mad. We're, all, <laughs> we're insane people. Anybody who says they're not completely mad is lying to themselves or to you. Mm-hmm. Correct. So where are we going? Alaska. Oh, nice, nice, uh, nice. I'm sorry. I mean, I'll ask her where we're oh, going. Oh, Alaska. I no, don't even I'm know. Sorry, uh, I'm, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's great. Uh, but it's true. We are going to Alaska, which is huge. It's mad big, y'all. Mm-hmm. Mad big. Uh, giant landmass. Much bigger than Vatican City. Uh, 663,268 square miles. Um, over a fifth of the side of the entire contiguous these United States, which is 3,100,000. 119,884.69 miles. Take a breath. Square. Six, six, nine. Nice. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's not forget. Thank you, Max. Let's I not, left the six, nine in there on purpose. Ah, uh, man. For effects. We're, we're having a cloud atlas moment. I feel so seen. Uh, you know what? By way of segue, Max mentions was also big. World War II. World War II, as any uh, history buff knows, began 1939. Also known as the Gnarly War. Mm -hmm, Yes. Uh, 
also known as World War II, the Warning. It ended in 1945. As of now, 2023, as we record, World War II is currently the deadliest and most destructive war in history, full stop. Yeah, short of like another nuke being detonated, it will probably, you know, hold that title uh, simply because the nature of warfare has just changed. It's a lot more right. targetable. It's a lot more precise. Uh, this was a, a ground conflict, you know, with people murdering each other with with guns. And then, of course, you know, uh, the big ones, the big boy, the little man, big man, little boy. Uh Fat, uh, fat boy, it, little fat, man. Fat, uh, it's nope. Little, little boy and fat man. That's right, man. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, big ups to Robert O. Uh, Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. If anyone's seen that, have you seen it yet? Have either of you seen Oppenheimer? No, yet? I I've read a lot about it. There's an excellent graphic novel called Trinity. Yes, that actually you remember this because uh, Matt Frederick and I, uh, Matt introduced me to it, and we had we got a wild hair where we we're going to try to make a podcast out of it. But from what I hear. Uh, Christopher Nolan basically nailed it. There is a documentary that's available right now on the Criterion channel called The Day After Trinity, mm-hmm. and that refers to something that Oppenheimer said in an interview when he was asked about the idea uh, from the president at the time of stemming uh, nuclear proliferation mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of pulling back nuclear, you know, armaments or whatever. And Oppenheimer said, uh, we're many years too late. That should have begun, that effort should have begun the day after Trinity, which of course refers to the test uh, of, uh, of the of the nuclear bomb. I want to shout out friend of the show, um, friend of ours, Patrice, who lives in Australia, who had this great suggestion, talking about Oppenheimer movie, had this great suggestion of doing an MCU approach to all these uh, physicists and nuclear-related scientists. And I think stuff will get real spicy when they get to Parsons. (laughs) You know, sex cult guy. Well, moving on, right? Uh, War is hell. It drives many innovations, uh, but it also shows humanity the worst of itself. More than 50 nations get entangled in the conflict. More than 100 million soldiers are deployed. Books and books and books have been written about World War II, not to mention the fact that films about World War II still come out continually every single year. Mm -hmm. Saving Ryan's Privates? Mm -hmm. No, sorry. That's the the, the nudie version. (laughs) Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Yeah, Storming the Beaches in Normandy, all of that good stuff. Band of Bum Boys, That's the one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is Dunkirk uh, World War II or is that World War I? Yep, Dunkirk is two and also uh, an excellent Christopher Nolan film. Oh, yeah. look Look at Christopher. So what we're saying is it's easy for some of these conflicts and some of these stories to get lost in the mix because so many crazy, terrible things happened. And here is something that you may not have known. I certainly didn't until Max asked us about it, Noel. There were World War II battles fought in Alaska. And, of course, just to be just so nobody else has to have this emotional roller coaster that I had, moose were not part of the battles. Yeah, I've always would love the idea of like moose, which is its own plural, of course, mm-hmm. uh, being you know armored like some sort of attack bear, you know, situation. Dude, I I told you when I got back because I had to go to uh, we, I was uh, producing a show called Missing in Alaska and spent like two weeks or a little more than two weeks, I think, in that state, uh, right as October was coming and. Moose run the town. Mm. This is something a lot of people who don't live in Alaska don't know. Alaskans have a hard time celebrating Halloween because moose like pumpkins, and they will just go and eat the jack-o'-lanterns and 
beat me here, Max. Fucking no one can stop them. Yeah, they're they're, they're massive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, if you if you kill a moose in um, uh, Tears of the Kingdom, uh, Legend of Zelda, it nets you three pieces of prime meat. Oh, how many uh, how many pieces of prime meat do other animals? Typically, have? only one. Oh, okay. So Zelda gets it. Mm-hmm. Nintendo gets it. Nintendo also got World War II. <laughs> Uh, because it's always, I mean, we, that, this is not really the point of today's episode, but I always, I think the both of us find it fascinating how Japan is one country that had to just reinvent itself entirely, you know, essentially after having its old way of life annihilated by a nuclear weapon. Right. And they did so with gusto and, and, and repurposed themselves as this incredibly important cultural, pop cultural uh, mecca, you know, mm. for, for everything from toys to manufacturing to uh, just culture. culture. Yeah, yeah, design, all of this. Stuff. Nintendo was a playing card company. That's, yeah. that's a success story. All right, so what we're saying is history of World War II, it's just chock full of terrible battles, lots of place names that become legendary. We mentioned Dunkirk, but what about Omaha Beach, Guadalcanal, Okinawa? To your point, Noel, uh, there are three names you may not have heard of at all. Islands off the coast of Alaska, Adak, Atu, and Kiska. They are part of the story of what's called the Aleutian Campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the elusive Aleutian Campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, a chain of small islands known as the Aleutian Islands that separate the Bering Sea to the north from the main part of the Pacific Ocean to the south. Um, they form kind of an arc uh, to the southwest and then northwest for around 1,100 miles uh, or 1,800 kilometers from the very tippity tip of the Alaskan Peninsula to the Atu Island that you mentioned, Ben. As the moose flies. Indeed. Or <laughs> as it, you know, gallops. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the moose in Alaska can fly. If you have never been to Alaska, just take that on faith. I think you're thinking of Rocky uh, as opposed to Bullwinkle. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah, there are also a lot of costumes on the moose. It's very popular. It's 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 the uh, it's the annual uh, moose cosplay festival. That's, also, that's what you go a mainstay for. on the wall of hunting lodges. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So, Americans, uh, the American forces, starting in 1942, they struggle to take control of two of these islands, Atu and Kiska, and not only do they confront the Japanese. But they're really fighting two different battles. Not only are you fighting human enemies, but shout out to Jack London uh, from To Build a Fire. You're fighting one of mankind's eternal enemies, the climate Mm -hmm. that you were not evolved to exist in. The bitter, bitter cold. It is incredibly cold. And the story of this battle, the series of conflicts, the defense of American soil, as you point out, Max, it has largely disappeared from the collective consciousness, which is why if you go to the Library of Congress, you're going to see titles like World War II's Unknown Campaign, because there hasn't been a film about this yet, and this is making me think it's time we uh, it's time that we open up the pitch process for ridiculous studios again. Yeah, maybe we can bring in Nolan uh, to the process. Mm -hmm. He seems to be down for this type of content. So uh, tell us a little bit about the Aleutian Islands, man. What, uh, I've never been to those islands, but they're part of Alaska. No, but you may have heard of a chain of volcanoes in the Pacific uh, known as the Ring of Fire, correct? Oh, Johnny Cash. 
Those are, in fact, a continuation of the Alaskan Aleutian Range, which are, in fact, underwater. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, the Johnny Cash song, uh, Ring of Fire, is entirely about the likelihood of volcanic explosions Mm -hmm. and earthquakes in the Pacific. Think about it. Read the lyrics. Or, at the very least, the volcanic explosion of love. There we go. And most of these islands do show their volcanic origin. You can see evidence of that. And uh, some of the volcanoes on those islands remain active today, thinking specifically of the Shishaldan volcano, which is near the center of Unamak Island. The shores are not your typical tourist destination. They're rocky. Uh, It's dangerous to approach them by water because the land rises abruptly from the coast to these big, big mountains. There's not really a fun beach is what we're saying. Oh, and for 8,000 years, nobody lived there except for Aleutian people. That's right. The Aleuts, um, also known as the Unangan. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the only occupants of uh, these islands. Um, and by the time Russian explorers uh, hit the scene, uh, around 25,000 Unangan uh, indigenous uh, people dispersed uh, to occupy the whole of the Aleutian Islands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in 1741, Russian forces send two dudes to explore the area. One is a Danish guy, Vitus Bering. Is the Bering Strait named after might him? Might sound familiar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't look it up, but that has to be named so, after him. Yeah, it's right course. there. It's like who invented the saxophone. So uh, there's another guy, Alexei Chirikov, and he is Russian. And they're kind of doing like a maritime Lewis and Clark thing. So their ships become separated in a storm. And this leads Chirikov to, quote unquote, discover several of the eastern islands. I'm saying, quote unquote, discover because, of course, for almost 10,000 years, other people were living there. And they were continually discovering where they lived. Uh, So Bering, quote unquote, discovered several of these western islands things going well for our buddy Vitas. He he dies during the voyage. The crew survives. They come back to Russia. They say, you guys, you know we love fur coats. And the Russians are like, yeah, man, we're Russian. Fur coats are one of our, you know, they're one of our big things. And they say, there are so many furry animals out there. We should go hunting. So hunters come from all around Siberia and flock toward these islands. They move across the Aleutians, the Alaska mainland. And this is where Russia gets its foothold in North America. And they do this in a bloody parallel of what uh, U.S. colonists would later do. They slaughter the Anangan people. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of uh, the the vibe um, of, you know, folks coming into areas that they would like to think they discovered. Right. Uh, and then just contending with the inconvenient fact that there are already, like, you know, people hanging out there. Uh, let's tell, hey, let's tell Max, we, hey, Max, we discovered this studio. I'll slaughter you. <laughs> I believe it. We'll try. Yeah, the door locks from the outside. Whoa. What? Yeah. Max is a bloodthirsty conqueror. Yeah as well as a crack producer. Yes. And the First Nations folks living there, the Anangan, who were not slaughtered, were enslaved or they were forced to relocate. Eventually, Russia sells the islands 
and the rest of Alaska to the United States in 1867. And the street name for this was Seward's Folly or Seward's Icebox because literally everybody else in America thought it was the dumbest idea. Oh, random history fact right here. When uh, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, it was a three-prong assassination attempt uh, to get Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, and Seward. Seward actually got the attack happened. Johnson, the attack didn't happen, but Seward survived the assassination attempt. So that's his other footnote in history. That's the, that's the smaller one behind he bought Alaska. Got it. it. Max with, with the, the facts. facts. Who's that sneaking in the phone? It's Max! And he's full of knowledge just for you right now. Here he comes. It's Max with the facts! <sighs> so in 1942, you might have heard of a little thing called Pearl Harbor. Um, six months before that, that uh, fateful Japanese attack that really kicked off World War II in earnest uh, in Hawaii, the Japanese were eyeing the Aleutian Islands. They were, yes, this is very true. And once they reached the island chain, this archipelago, the Japanese started conducting, Japanese forces started conducting airstrikes on Dutch Harbor, which was the site of two U.S. military bases. They started this on June 3rd and June 4th. Then they made landfall at Kiska Island on June 6th. And then uh, just a day later, they make landfall on Atu Island, about 200 miles away. They quickly establish pop-up military bases on both islands. Does it feel like some of these uh, indigenous names, you know, um, for, for these islands that obviously uh, descended from the people who live there were possibly uh, inspiration for some Star Wars things? Oh, 100%. It feels yeah. that way. I mean, yeah, I know. No, that's yeah. a good call. That's just, a good call. Uh, I didn't think Island that. just really feels very much in the Star Wars universe. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts of a spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The Japanese garrison, their forces there, established military bases on both uh, Kiska and Atu Islands. And very similarly to other islands in the Aleutian chain, um, Atu and Kiska didn't really represent much of a military stronghold, um, strategically speaking, right? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, man, because they didn't have a ton of resources. There are rocks in the far north. They had a lot of harsh weather. Uh, it was... They're out of the way. They're out of the way. They're out of the main way of the conflict. Uh, the, they have a lot of crazy storms and fog and rain. And, you know, it snows a lot. If you ask historians after the fact, you'll hear a lot of them argue that Japan seized those two islands because they wanted to divert attention during the Japanese attack on Midway Island, which was uh, occurring June 4th through 7th in 1942. And so they were trying to get the U.S. Navy to misdirect its forces. Like a diversion. Right, mm. right. And they they also thought, apparently, and this, this makes sense, that holding those islands could stop the U.S. from invading Japan's home islands. Because once you get to that top of the globe, Japan is a lot closer to the Aleutian Islands than we might assume. Does it make sense maybe that the, 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 the Japanese would have targeted these island chains because it was something they were kind of comfortable with in terms of, you know, military um, operations, you know, because it's similar layout to their home turf? Yeah, it's similar. It's, uh, it's easier to get to. Uh, it's also, yeah, it goes into kind of that island hopping strategy. But they are, again, the Bering Sea and the Sea of Okhotsk separate them, but they're they're very close. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to jump in real quick, uh, there is this interesting thread that I've really been kind of pulling on in history. And we've actually talked about it a number of times. I kind of think this is like part three or four of a series that we have, which, spoiler, there's a, another part already in the works where it's like this fear of Japanese invasion yeah. on uh, the West Coast of America. It was never really a thing that was ever actually that close. But, you know, we have the fire balloons. We have the guy who tried to firebomb yes. Oregon. Yeah. It was Japan was always trying to keep this narrative going. They're like, hey, America, we're not that far away. Watch because, out. Yeah, which is like, I mean, there's not really any proof that they ever got to the point where they thought invading the U.S. was feasible because it's so far. Well, yeah, and, and I th we should draw a differentiation there between U.S., the whole thing and continental U.S. because Hawaii is in the middle of the ocean. Uh, so, from a strategic standpoint, Pearl Har the Pearl Harbor attack makes sense for Japan. It would have been much more feasible than attacking, say, San Francisco. Anyway, but yeah. it was a big deal to have the Japanese occupying any portion of American soil, no matter how out of the way. A hundred percent. Like, like uh, philosophically speaking. Yeah, symbolically. Know. How dare thee? Uh, so they know it's remote. They know it's barren, but they're saying, 
Japanese troops are on U.S. soil. They're occupying U.S. land, and they stoke this fear amongst themselves, not without some justification. They say, look, these forces might, this might be the first step in an attack on Alaska or, you know, even the entirety of the Pacific Northwest. And uh, the, the press is drumming up a lot of bloody headlines about this, but the people in charge of the American war effort, from what I understand, man, they're still trying to figure out how to survive Pearl Harbor. Exactly. That's, that's you know, mission critical. That's like item number one on the to-do list. <laughs> right, right. And so their attention is already kind of in a couple of different places. Japan occupies these islands for months. And for a while, for the first few months, all the U.S. military does is sort of fly by and, and bomb stuff occasionally. Sort of a an effort to show that they are doing something. And in the meantime, uh, the Japanese soldiers who have garrisoned on these islands are doing a bang-up job of getting very cozy, relatively as cozy as you can get in these very harsh climates. Um, the Japanese Navy is keeping them stocked with, you know, uh, snacks. You got to have their, <laughs> right. their, their war snacks. Uh, and also, you know, uh, arms, of yeah, course, and, and ammunition and, and fuel and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. So by January of 1943... The U.S. has sort of beefed up its Alaskan command um, to the tune of around 94,000 soldiers. Uh, they've set up several bases around uh, and on other Aleutian Islands. And on January 11th, troops from that Alaskan command uh, make landfall on Amchitka Island, which is about 50 miles from Kiska Island. One of the two main ones that the Japanese are occupying. Yeah, and this is where we have to introduce U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Thomas C. Kincaid. And I want to stop and say, you know, thank you to all our veterans tuning in. Yes. We have not ever been members of the Navy, and I will never not think Rear Admiral is low-key a hilarious It's funny. Name. Yeah, well, yeah a, lot of, a lot of military uh, terms associated with leadership do kind of have a little bit of a teehee quality to them. Also, um, you guys, cool, if I jump in real quick, I got some uh, pretty uh, intense facts right here. The temperature currently on Atu Station in Alaska yeah, yeah. is 53 degrees. We were recording this in August. 53 below? No, just 53 degrees oh, okay. below. Oh. And in Kiska, it is supposed to get up to 55 today. Sorry. Boiling, global boiling. Yeah. Oh, right. And so, But that's not insane, right? That's what we're talking, like 53. It's cold, but it's not like... It's the height of August. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So, uh, it's the height of August, so it would be one of the warmest months in the mm -hmm. Northern Hemisphere. That's about as hot as it gets, even with all the hard work we've done throwing all those uh, pollutants in the air. Everybody get back to the coal. Exactly. <laughs> because it's still, it's still too chilly uh, in Alaska. Anyway, sorry. So, U.S. Uh, Navy <laughs> Rear Admiral Kincaid. Noel, why are we introducing this guy? Well, because he set up a blockade of Atu and Kiska uh, to help kind of stem the flow of those supplies, those snacks and armaments sure. yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, all the other goodies that the Japanese are supplying to the occupiers there. Uh, and on March 26th of 1943, um, the Japanese ship that are afloat in the Bering Sea 
try to get around the uh, the blockade and deliver some supplies. And re- this is very Star Wars-y, too. Remember that whole uh, Star Wars movie that's just about the blockade? Oh, yeah. Yeah, really, really powerful stuff. You know, no, it's not. That <laughs> movie has always eluded me as so, like, talky, you know, government-y stuff. Which movie is it? I think it was The Phantom Menace that starts off with, a, with like, all the alien guys talking about it. The blockade. It's I, a blockade. Oh, I barely remember The Phantom yeah. Menace. Did you ever hear the theory that, um, and this is, this is really interesting fan theory. That goes Attack of the Clones, actually. That was the, the, the blockade. Yeah, oh. that makes sense. Yeah. Attack of the Clones sounds like that because they go get the clones because they need to break the blockade. That's right. That's oh, okay. Hello. This is Future Max here, i.e. the guy producing the episode, not on the recording. Yeah, I led Noel Stray. He's correct. It is the Phantom Menace, not Attack of the Clones. Uh, to be completely honest, I don't know the plot of either of those movies. I've seen them. I've definitely seen them. But... I don't know. I don't actually really remember anything else about the movie, but I wanted to add this addendum in here. So there's that. Solved it. Uh, yeah, that movie was terrible. So not good. No one remembers. Not good. That. Here's the question: um, Have you guys ever heard the theory that Lucas originally wanted Jar Jar Binks to be revealed as a Sith Lord? Yep. Is that true? Yeah. That's well. That's it's true. That's a theory. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. But it's like one of those things. You know, wait until two a.m. Watch the YouTube documentary right. about it. It's way too long. Maybe and, maybe he pivoted because the character was just so blasphemously unpopular. Yeah, and coded in some really racist. Boy, ways. howdy was it ever! <laughs> and poor guy. There's a whole thing where the guy that played the voice of Jar Jar Biggs, I believe, is the voice, and he also was the model that they based the CGI yeah. movements out of. That guy kind of uh, not. Uh, at no fault of his own, sort of got canceled because of, you know, because of George Lucas's ill-informed uh, attempts at uh, making that character. By the thing. way, if you go into Google, because I was going to look up who the actor was, but you, t- you type in Jar Jar Binks, first, uh, first suggestion is Jar Jar Binks is not a Sith. Second suggestion, Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord. Cool. <laughs> we and oddly enough, number probably. three is Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord, etc. crossword. It's like history. It rhymes, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the answer is theory or fan theory. Anyway, for the crossword, anybody who's playing that. C- can we just say that yes. the, 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 the blockade, he's attempting to, the, the Japanese yeah. ships are trying to break through the blockade, but they are spotted by some U.S. ships that are patrolling the area and a skirmish, I guess you could call it, uh, begins, you know, a, a sea battle. Um, I don't know if it was big enough to call it. Well, no, it had a name. It was the Battle of the Commandorsky Islands, which is a fun name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we know, the Jap- the Japanese have, have had a little bit of a head start. So they're already, you know, out gunning and outnumbering. Yes, they, they're dug in real good. Uh, and the U.S. fleet has a hard time matching their forces, and they are uh, seriously hobbled, you know, by the Japanese uh, the Japanese ships. Um, so the American side suffers some serious uh, casualties after uh, quite a few hours of fighting the Japanese ships, then suddenly decide to withdraw. Why is that? You know, it's because they were worried the heat was around the corner. Hmm. They thought bombers were arriving because they they were estimating how long it would take for American forces to contact each other and how long from there it would take for U.S. bombers to come and just rain fire on the islands. Okay, okay. Got it. Its own kind of ring of fire there. So after the battle, um, the Japanese soldiers that are garrisoned there on Atu and Kiska are incredibly isolated um, because they aren't, they don't, that flow 
uh, of supplies that they were had grown accustomed to has stopped. It no was unsuccessful. More, no more snacks in the break. No room. more snacks in the break room. Exactly. They're having to kind of fend for themselves. Their supplies are diminishing significantly. They do get intermittent deliveries, secret submarines delivering to them, but you can only go so far with that, right? Because right. they're not huge. You know, you can't. Yeah, the submarine's coming up and it's throwing like a 24 pack of chips out mm-hmm. and going back under. Yeah, some Gatorade and like, Zero. Yeah. These aren't even Lay's chips. This yeah. is what I want Ruffles. <laughs> right. Where are my Ruffles? Dude, okay. I suspect that the three of the three of us might have the same hierarchy of chip. Oh, I think that's possible. It's gonna have the Fritos in there. And you're like, damn it. And there it's gonna There's be a bowl such full a disappointment. Fritos. There's such a also ran. Anyway, that has nothing to do with it because you're making a very important point. The whatever a submarine can deliver is probably gonna be survival mm-hmm. rations. Yep. Are we talking like MRE type things on the Japanese side too? Or, you know, uh, would, would they have been different? I, I wonder, and I, I'm just conjecturing here, yeah. like, you know, obviously the Japanese, um, when did like dry like ramen noodles and things become invented? After World War II. It was II. after World War II. Okay. Momofuku Ando. So, that's right. Okay. We talked about that recently, but I'm wondering what those rations might have looked like because we know about um, MREs. We talked about that pretty extensively. I just have, I'm, I'm curious as to what Japanese rations looked like if there was any parallel thinking there. They had something called imperial Japanese rations that were served in these little tin boxes mm. and you had to cook them yourself. There's actually, there are a couple of articles and sources you can find. They usually had rice and then some kind of protein and then vegetables, uh, pickled vegetables most likely, and green tea. Sometimes you would get barley instead of rice. And then you were sort of expected to forage for other stuff. So these guys, if they're getting imperial, they might be getting those rations. They might just be getting rice and being told, hey, get water, cook the rice. It's definitely not ideal. And the American forces are thinking, all right, this is our opportunity to storm the beach, to land troops on the islands and take the combat to these Japanese garrisons. This is the origin of something with the unfortunate name Operation Land Crab. Have I told you that my nickname for my girlfriend is The Crab? No, you have not. Told I, I often that. refer to you as the crab. Wow. Like, not well, just my little crab or my crab. I, I say, hello, the crab. Yeah, and yeah. I, sometimes when I text her, I'll just say, the crab? Question mark. How, how, uh, is an emoji that is a uh-huh. crab. She described herself as a bit of a, a, a recluse early on in our relationship, so I a called her a crab. hermit crab. Yeah. But it's become a term of affection, so I often refer to her as the crab. So our home is also littered with uh, crab plushies and uh, crab. I have like a pair of Crocs with crab. Uh, what do you call those little dingles that go on? Yeah, the, you know the little the, the flare, de- the decorative flare for 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 Crocs. Do you guys uh, do, do you have a name based on? I'm an the butterfly uh, because she thinks I'm a bit of a. She's a shut in. I'm a social butterfly. Oh, okay. But That's the, these terms have taken on their own meaning. That's over endearing. Time. I yeah. think so. Too, well, every so. relationship creates w- its w- own language. My my girlfriend would approve of Operation Land Crab, and and when yeah, I that hear would, that, I immediately think of her with affection. That's what that one's for you, Day. Did, does she listen to the show? Nope. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So like we said, American ships have been sporadically bombing the islands for a while. On May 11th, 1943, the U.S., enacts Operation Land Crab. 11,000 U.S. troops land on Atu, which is, again, not the world's biggest island. The Americans are a little chuffed about this. They're a little optimistic. They say, we're going to be done in like a couple days, you guys, because they didn't know how bad the weather was going to be. They didn't know how terrible the terrain was. Their uh, short mission ends up lasting more than two weeks. I love military, like, like, like classic military men turns of phrase, you know, when describing conflicts. And uh, Lieutenant Donald E. Dwinnell, which is another great military yeah. man name, uh, described it as such. It was rugged. The whole damn deal was rugged, like attacking a pillbox by way of a tightrope in winter. Mm-hmm. I don't quite get it. Attacking a pillbox by way of a tightrope. Yeah, so like, you know, a pillbox is, you've got that, uh, it's like a con- concrete enclosure with a little slit where people can shoot. Oh, not folks. actually a pillbox of pills. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> the, the, the visual wasn't working on me, um, but I get it now. But yeah. But still, that is a, a beautiful turn of language. Uh, they also, so now that's what we talked about at the very beginning. So they have two enemies now. They have the Japanese forces who are already entrenched and dug in. And then they have the just terrible, terrible weather. It turns out that the weather was responsible for more U.S. casualties than any actual enemy combatant. That's right. More than 2,100 American soldiers were removed from the conflict, uh, taken out of action is how the National Park Service refers to this as in their article, Battle of Attu, 60 Years Later, which uh, we highly recommend giving a read. So that means killed or injured, right? Taken out of combat. Right, right. Due to the, 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 the horrible conditions. 
Yeah, they are no longer operators. Things like disease uh, would have come into play. Trench you know? foot. Right, exactly. Um, so these would, would have been also referred to as non-battle injuries. Um, while around 1,700 were killed or injured by um, Japanese forces. Yeah, it turns out when they were thinking through Operation Landcraft, despite the fact that they were familiar with the islands, despite the fact that people in general understand Alaska is cold, Uncle Sam had not taken the weather into account. So they didn't have the right kind of gear to operate there. They were falling victim to frostbite, exposure, trench foot is thankfully something, I, I hope no one's ever experienced this. Is it like gangrene? It's or? super nasty. Okay. It can become gangrene. It's like you have, you're, imagine you're walking through wet, crappy environments for weeks and you never get to change your socks. Ooh, so it yeah. basically, your foot starts to rot? Yeah. Essentially, or just like, oh God. Yeah, if you don't treat it, it can become gangrenous and result in amputation. Lots of bacteria and things can form you know, in, in this nasty uh, kind of fetid, closed situation, yeah. you know, in your boots. Turning your, your boot. foot yeah. into a terrarium for bacteria, right? Even more so. Think of it as like really advanced athlete's foot. Terrible, <laughs> terrible stuff. And, you know, we have to exercise humanity. Realize that a lot of these Japanese soldiers are laboring under the same brutal conditions. They're not having a good day either. Just like any war, I'm sure there are a lot of soldiers on either side who are going, ugh, why? Why, am, why do I have to be here? But uh, because these guys weren't dressed warmly enough, the U.S. soldiers had to keep moving to keep their circulation going. And sometimes that meant they would expose themselves to enemy fire. Some of them were too beat up to walk, so they crawled around. And when they killed Japanese soldiers, they stole their clothing to stay warm. And uh, that leads to friendly fire because now you are dressed as an enemy soldier. The term friendly fire always kind of cracks me up. It's it's the least friendly thing yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. It just, of course, uh, not to say the obvious, but it refers to, you know, accidentally shooting someone that's on your team. Right, right. And it is a very real thing. It's like an own goal. <laughs> yeah, it has happened in every single modern um, conflict. So this battle has already kind of been decided. The fate of the Japanese is sealed as soon as the Americans establish air and naval supremacy, which despite Pearl Harbor is still only a matter of time because the U.S. is much closer. They cut those supply lines. Uh, they made it unlikely for reinforcements to arrive. And by May, the last remaining Japanese troops were starving. Yeah, give a, run it out of bullets. Give a quick read or a, a, a long read to, it's not a particularly long article, but to the Battle of the Aleutian Islands uh, from history.com from back in 2009. It was actually updated uh, as recently as 2020. So um, lots of good resources there for this chronology that we're pulling from. Uh, the commander of the Japanese forces, a Colonel Yasuyo Yamasaki, decides to give it one last hurrah, uh, one last push. Um, and right before uh, morning on May 29th, um, he and he leading his forces, um, they uh, 
execute what's referred to a bonsai charge, yeah. which is a term that I was not uh, intimately familiar with. This was apparently a tactic that was uh, employed uh, during the war uh, in the Pacific, of course. The, Overwhelming numbers. That's right. Everybody yeah. runs at once. Mm-hmm. And so Yamasaki's troops do the big charge. Uh, it really is kind of like a, just a murderous rampage, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. And it's a dangerous tactic as well. This becomes one of the largest bonsai charges of its time. Uh, as it's one where you're not worried about people dying. It's no. just you're putting all your cards on the table. Right. Cannon you're, fodder city. You're you know? literally throwing bodies at a problem. And they did this out of desperation. So they charge into the American lines. They sweep through the combat outpost. They get all the way to the support troops in the rear of the camp. They almost succeed. But... After a final attack on May 30th, the U.S. soldiers win the day. They've counted more than 2,000 Japanese casualties, including the commander. Uh, They lost around, the U.S. lost around 1,000 men uh, retaking Atu. And then within two days, they had secured the island and the Battle of Atu, the only land battle ever fought on American soil in World War II, was over. Shout out also to the National Park Service. I know, right? They've got think. great articles they, on they this. They truly do. You know, we just what we just described, Ben, sounds more like an episode of Game of Thrones it really than it does, does modern warfare. Yeah. yeah and, and that's why it makes sense this was such a deadly war because th- these types of tactics, they just don't make sense anymore, you know, because of the nature of, of combat has just changed. So this type of land charge, I just picture men on horses with lances or something, you know? Um, but instead, it's people, you know, running while firing machine guns and bayoneting people and stuff. But it's not that different. And honestly, to give you a sense of the desperation, when people are starving and you want them to make a suicide run like this, Sometimes all you have to do is tell them that there's food in the enemy camp. Jesus. Right. That level of desperation is just mind-boggling. And while this might sound like the end of the story, there is one more operation of note that I think is worth, at the very least, kind of breezing through without, for fear of giving short shrift to literally the loss of human lives um, and and just the the vast, uh, overwhelmingly um, deadly nature of this entire conflict. This one actually was not so bad. This is the ridiculous one. It is. This is the ridiculous one. So remember we said there were two islands that were the, um, that form the, setting or the theater for this conflict. The 11th Army Air Force and the Navy Patrol Wing 4 get their assignment to take back Kiska Island in something called Operation Cottage, which is not as creative. Uh, They're told literally, push the enemy into the sea, get the island back. This is after Atu. Literally? (laughs) Push them into the sea? Push them into the sea. Uh, And so... They said, look, we've got lessons learned. We're going to give you the right clothing. We're going to give you the right uh, gear and equipment. And you are going to encounter way more troops than we faced at Atu. And so on August 5th, 1943, they arrive at Kiska. They've already been told the weather's going to be horrible. This is going to be way harder than the other island. The weather is nice. Mm -hmm. The sea is quiet. And there's no one there. 
Yeah, they have themselves a little beach chill. No, they they don't. But they're certainly uh, probably uh, surprised, you know, uh, in the positive direction um, because they've been prepared for the absolute worst uh, and they get there and it's an absolute cakewalk. Um, And there is an actual reason for this. The Japanese forces had abandoned their post. Uh, On July 29th, 1943, the Japanese forces uh, stationed on Kiska decided to hightail it out of there. Um, Kiska City... Uh, which is what they were referring to their outpost as, um, was wired with explosives and uh, demolished, um, including all of their supplies, ammunition, and uh, outposts. They had booby traps. Yeah, exactly. But they they did this in advance of the Americans arriving, though, right? Yeah. They they they, they didn't want to leave them anything that would be of use. Yeah, we have a statement from Carl Kasukabe, who was uh, was there. He was a Japanese veteran and said— Quote, we threw our rifles and bayonets into the water and then we went away. Mm -hmm. They never saw us. So in 55 minutes, the entire Japanese force there, over 5,000 people, boarded the vessels. They drifted off silently into the night. Uh, And the word for that is noctivigant which we recently learned. Oh, wow. To go about in the night. That's a good one. It would make sense, nocturnal, being the route, I imagine. Um, The Allies uh, had a hard time believing that this wasn't some sort of ruse. Yeah, imagine running... So, okay, they're going to pop out any minute. They're it's somewhere. funny because it's ridiculous, right? Imagine you're you're running full bore onto the shore. You've got your uh, you've got your firearm locked and loaded. You might be yelling. You might just be like, ah! Mm-hmm. How long do you keep yelling until you notice that no one's there except maybe maybe there's a moose who's like. Come on, man. I just picture, it's like that scene in Spinal Tap where they're like lost and can't find the stage and they're just pumped up about like, <laughs> let's rock, rock and roll. Yeah. And then they turn a corner and they realize they're, they're not there yet. So they kind of like get flustered and then, okay, 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 let's get back. Let's get the yeah, energy back. Get it, back ah! get it back. I picture them like screaming and then they turn a corner. No one's there. Okay. Okay. They're definitely going to be around this next corner. Okay. Let's get up. Let's get up the energy again. And then no one. So after, you know, again, in our version of events, uh, several uh, of, of these uh, highs and lows, right. they finally accept the fact that there there truly is no one around. Yes, and they are still fighting the weather. So there are, unfortunately, fatalities. 24 Allied troops are killed by, again, friendly fire. Four die due to Japanese booby traps. Mm, booby. <laughs> yeah, 71 die when uh, one ship hits a floating mine. And then a lot of other guys, uh, more, 168 either get wounded or they fall ill, probably due at least in part to the weather. That's right. We're around eight days of this, looking around and realizing that finally no one was there. This was, at the end of the day, on paper, I guess, perhaps to save face. Mm. I, I would imagine written off as a training exercise. Okay, sure. Yeah. Nice. That's like, I have a bad habit of... Noel and Max both know this. I have a bad habit of doing something klutzy and then just immediately looking, looking, yeah, at whomever <laughs> has seen it, making eye contact and yelling on purpose. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've borrowed that tactic from you. It's a good one, Ben. It's a good one. So, um, yeah, at the end of the day, this represents a defeat of the Japanese forces at the Aleutian Islands. And very interesting story. Uh, this has got some, you know, the intense, the intensity of this conflict is represented. Uh, we got a little ridiculousness thrown in there. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, 
none of this can be seen as purely ridiculous, although the foibles and follies of man are nothing if not ridiculous. Uh, at times. Um, but I think this is a really interesting kind of little encapsulation sure. of the entire conflict. And I'm surprised that it hasn't been dramatized, you know, because it's really exactly the kind of story that would really play well on, on screen. I want to at least see the moment where they run onto the abandoned island. Yeah. I want that Definitely moment. how it went down. No question. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you describe it well. It is a microcosm of a, of a larger horrific conflict that fundamentally altered the course of the world and the consequences of World War II continue to, um, to echo and resonate today. The war continues for two years after the Battle of the Aleutian Islands. Japan finally surrenders to the Allies on September 2nd, 1945. This basically ends World War II. And now if you go to these islands, you'll see the battlefields there have become national historical landmarks in recognition of this singular, unique conflict that, again, a lot of people don't know about. And that's why we owe a big, big thanks to our research associate and super producer, uh, Max, the the, 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 the great North Michigander. The Michigoose is, is, is what I'm sticking <laughs> The Moosegander? All of those things. Okay. It contains a multitude. Williams uh, is as, his as last name. And also, there, are, there are moose in uh, Michigan. Also, do you guys know what the plural of moose is? It's moose. Yes. We already talked yeah. about that. That was oh, the first thing I said. It's its own plural. Yeah, oh. that's one of my favorite things about the humble moose. But yeah, also huge thanks to the to the to the elder Williams, uh, Alex, who composed this banging uh, track that you're listening to right this very second. Jonathan Strickland, our, our human booby trap, if ever there was one. <laughs> oh, he'll like that one, aka the Quister. And of course, big big thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat, who, unlike Tipper Gore, has a show coming out on our network. It's true, I uh, cleared that one up. Yeah, they, that was a good save. Yeah, and thanks, of course, to Christopher Hossi who just, I was talking with Christopher earlier and he hipped me to some amazing facts about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, specifically famine. Okay. Yeah. He's a hungry boy. He's that kind of dude. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission 
parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.